Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you now. Very pleased to get a chance to chat with you about all the things going on out there. Uh, Over the course of the show, we will certainly discuss the inquiry into that ambush that killed four of our special operations soldiers in Niger. A lot of politics around that now. Much discussion from members of Congress saying that they need more oversight. They need to know more. I'll get into it, but they want to know more. Perhaps they should pay more attention to what they already should know about that. And uh, we'll talk some uh, some depth about we'll get into some depth about the latest on the tax plan and what Congress is supposed to do. I'm increasingly of the mind that we're not going to see anything happen before the end of the year. So I don't know how useful it is to get into all of the details as we go along, other than to understand the ins and outs of the policy debate over taxes. And I know they've got prototypes of a border wall that they have unveiled. So there are certainly some important uh, developments with regard to the conversation over issues like the economy and the immigration and immigration. Um, but I, I don't know in terms of legislation that we will see all that much. We'll get into that. Uh, but I wanted to start today. Uh, well, we, we will discuss Uranium One and Russia and real collusion. Uh, but first, I want to establish a, a principle. And this is uh, this goes right to the heart of the narrative that Democrats and the media or the Democrat media working in concert with each other. You could even say working in collusion with each other. This is one of their favorite tricks. This is a ploy that I think, unfortunately, works still much more than it should. And it's the emergence of a problem the emergence of a grave problem with a Republican administration that had been there before, but now we have to be told much more about it. Uh, An example of this would be, and this does tie into what's going on right now uh, with the various conflicts in which the U.S. and uh, U.S. soldiers find themselves abroad, casualty rates and reports on U.S. casualties and how much attention they get from the media under the Obama administration, as I have had to point out, and, and I think needs to be pointed out continuously going forward, you had double the casualties in Afghanistan that uh, happened under the Bush administration. And yet, how many people even know that? Why is there such a discrepancy in that knowledge? I think it's because they didn't want to make things more difficult for a Democrat and what gets public's attention and and deserves more inquiry than our troops who are serving overseas and who are taking casualties and 
fighting and risking life and limb? Well, the answer is nothing is more important than that. And so why do they not cover it? Well, because it can be difficult for an administration to have to make some of those uh, have to make the case to the American people. So that's something that happens with the anti-war movement on the left. The anti-war, anti-war movement largely faded away for eight years, and it's not back quite yet, but it's starting to come back a little bit. You'll see more of that. The opioid epidemic has certainly gotten worse over the last couple of years, but it was very bad in the latter years of the Obama administration, much less of a focus on that. And some of the classics stretching back for decades have to do with uh, you know, homelessness. That will all of a sudden be a major national news story. As though homelessness just appeared within a few, all of a sudden, within a few months of a Republican administration, there's rampant homelessness. Well, it's been there all along, but now they'll do more stories on it. And this then brings me to Uranium One and Russia and what I think is happening here. Because Russian interference in one way or another in U.S. policy and our economy, in the decision-making processes, Russian efforts to corrupt U.S. businesses, and yes, policymakers, decision-makers at the top of government, they are not in the least new. The Russians and other countries that have the resources and the the will to do so uh, have been trying to interfere in these ways for many decades. I can't even begin to put a, this is when it started on it, right? Because in the case of the Russians, it's goes back to the Cold War, goes back to before the Cold War. And what I think has happened now with some of these recent revelations, uh, some of the very good reporting out there about Uranium One, is that at a minimum, at a minimum it is clear, and I think that there's much more to it than this, but at a minimum it is clear that the previous administration could have and should have raised alarms about Russian interference and corruption and violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and uh, serial violations of U.S. federal criminal law, the Obama administration could have raised the alarm about it, but did not. They did not for reasons that we will continue to look at. But at first glance, when you go through all the facts of this, and it's It's a little Byzantine. It is a complicated matter to wade into the details of this case, of the Uranium One story. But the more you look into it, the more clear it is that there was something very fishy going on. It was stinky fish with Russia and our nuclear sector and the people that were making decisions. The Obama administration, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, and the ethics panel that was approving dozens of Bill Clinton speeches all over the world while his wife was Secretary of State, including to a Kremlin-connected bank for $500,000. I have to hat-tip our friend Andy McCarthy for pointing out in National Review that we are seeing reports about $100,000 spent on Facebook ads as though they changed the election. And the same people that are outraged in the media that we don't get more outraged about that, seem to yawn. They could care less. There is no particular interest from them about how Bill Clinton was getting paid a half a million dollars. That's, that's real money even to the Clintons to give a, a speech, a, a speech nobody remembered and nobody cared about. 
How many half million dollar speeches do you think Bill Clinton's given this year now that his wife lost? I'm going to guess not very many. How many $800,000 speeches do you think Bill Clinton has given this year now that his wife is no longer going to be president? I'm going to guess zero. Never mind the way the media is going to have to circle the wagons and try and convince us all once we see plummeting donations. And they already shut down the Clinton Global Initiative right away, right after the election, because they because they knew it was no one was going to give that money anymore because that was just a way for countries all over the world to buy influence or even just the perception of influence with the Clintons. That's why when we look at the issue of Russia collusion now and you see some of the names involved in the FBI's investigation into Uranium One and the Russian subsidiary and Rosatom and all this stuff that's out there right now. As you look at it, you you will see some uh, names. You will see some folks who are uh, familiar to all of you. Um, you'll see some folks who are playing a role even today, who are playing a role in the Russia collusion investigation. Names like Comey and uh, his number two, his name, what is it, uh, Rod? Now, now he's, what is Rod Rosenstein? I forget what role he is now at the DOJ. Is he, uh, what is he? He's number two, isn't he? Anyway, he's in charge of the Russia collusion stuff, I think. But the FBI was involved with criminal investigations of Russian involvement in the nuclear sector in this country. Obama administration was quiet on it. The FBI was also aware, according to newly released reports, that there were efforts underway to try and get close to have agents of influence close to Hillary Clinton, to the senior levels of the State Department, and that was ongoing. And we know that Bill Clinton's getting checks for half a million dollars a year, and all of this was happening. Now, you can say to me, oh, well, Buck, that was then, and she didn't win, but here's what I know for sure. This whole, oh, my gosh, Russia was so involved in our last election, this is a question of protecting our democracy, this is a question of salvaging the republic we have to get to the bottom of this they were buying facebook ads for heaven's sakes there are russian sock puppets out there on twitter that are saying mean stuff about hillary this is this is a national security issue of the highest order they're saying all this stuff and we've got Mueller, who now is i know looking at podesta it's a you know i i think podesta feels fine about this though because as shady as podesta to me seems to be uh Mueller is going to make sure Mueller's not going after any Democrats. He's going after Republicans. He's going after Trump and Trump's people. But as all this is happening, we have this investigation, the sole purpose, uh, sole purpose of which is to end the current administration, to just finish, finish it off, to force Trump to resign or one of his top people to resign and maybe go to prison. That's the purpose of the investigation. There is no conclusion they will draw from all of this vast uh, outlay of FBI resources and an investigative effort. There's no conclusion that they will draw that will help us into the future. This is payback, plain and simple. But you can look at this and know a few things. One, the Obama administration didn't make this public, didn't want us to know about it, and 
was, I think, covering for some of Hillary's people. Didn't want this to get too big. And you can get into the plea bargain for the one guy who was tied into this Russia uranium uh, uranium one scandal who, who pled to a minor federal charge and how that happened. But you can also then step back and say, hold on a minute. Russia was doing all this stuff during the Obama years. We didn't hear a peep about this. You had Russian uh, Russian agents in this country trying to have their hand in our nuclear sector, trying to get close to Hillary Clinton in the top echelon of the State Department. You had all this going on. And we hear nothing. We hear absolutely nothing. And then Trump wins the election, beats Hillary, and we are treated to frequent, frequent lectures about how Russia is such a threat now and, and Russia... We should nullify the election because of their interference and all of this. See what I mean about how this is this is not even forget about even being able to prove yet everything that happened under the Obama years with Clinton. And it's still very relevant. It's relevant as a matter of statute because it's within the time frame for almost all. We're talking about what in the last few years. Your average federal crime, most federal crimes have a five year prosecutorial uh, statute of limitations on them. But beyond that. Looking at the narrative now of what they're trying to tell us, there was all kinds of corruption and Russian interference and collusion and coercion. Corruption. While Obama's in office, his FBI is looking at it, it's known at the very top level. Hillary's husband, as she's secretary of state, is taking huge checks from Russian banks with direct ties to the Kremlin, which means basically the Kremlin's writing Bill Clinton huge checks while his wife is looking at all this. And now we're supposed to worry about Russia. Now, now that Hillary lost the election, this is why they this is why they have no credibility. This is why people don't want to hear it. Uh, this is why there is a a willingness to tune out a lot of the allegations about Trump and his the latest with uh, you know the the Russia collusion investigation because they've just discovered this problem of Russian interference when it's convenient for them. They hid it when it was not convenient for them. And it may be a lot more than just inconvenient. It may be a question of illegality. You can take my word for it, or you can believe Hillary Clinton. She's got something to say. It's the same baloney they've been peddling for years, and there's been no, no credible evidence by anyone. In fact, it's been debunked repeatedly and will continue to be debunked. But Trump and his allies, including Fox News, are really experts at distraction and diversion. So the closer the investigation about real Russian ties between Trump associates and real Russians, the more they want to just throw mud on the wall and I'm their favorite target, me and, you know, President Obama with the crosshairs. Um, so, yes, I, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I think the real story is how nervous they are about these continuing investigations. She keeps saying things like debunked, which is a great PR word when you're trying to defuse something without actually dealing with it on the merits. Did Trump ever get a check for half a million dollars to show up and give a speech to a Russian-backed bank when his wife was Secretary of State looking at an, a, an issue of national security and nuclear energy? No. I'm pretty sure that never happened. So... Let's just keep it real here and look at the facts as they are, not as Hillary wishes them to be. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We've got much more. Stay with me. The Uranium One deal, the 20% of mm-hmm. U.S. uranium going to a Russian interest after Bill Clinton gave a half a million dollar speech. 
in Russia and while Hillary Clinton was at the State Department. So this is the type of connect the dot connected dots poly game that a lot sure. of Americans like to play. And I think that if we're going to continue to talk about Russia, 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 some of those other outlets can dust off their chirons and screaming graphics I haven't seen in a while and talk about Uranium One. Oh, but they won't. That was Kellyanne Conway. Um, and we know that the media will not touch the Uranium One scandals. I- I'm wondering who will be the first to break the story. Well, there's a lot of stories to be broken here, but the first one to, to break the story that the Clinton Foundation's foreign uh, foreign donations are down. I, I'm going to guess. I'm going to go, and we, and we should note this for whatever it comes out, right? I'm going to guess the Clinton Foundation this year is down 20 to 30 percent with whatever it has to disclose from international donors, which for a foundation that was nothing but getting bigger and bigger for every year, that, that to me seems... Ty, what do you think, 20 30%? Amy, does that sound about right? I think I'm going to put it out there, 20 to 30%. It could be it could be more, but that's because if they get, if they all stop giving right away, it's almost too embarrassing for the for some of the donor countries that they were just trying to buy influence. But the media never was very interested in those stories. Uh, they never thought that it was strange that the wife, I'm sorry, that the husband of the Secretary of State, Bill Clinton, could go all over the world and just get the sign-off for these speeches, which is just like taking a donation. I mean, these speeches are not, it's not what the market will bear. It's just a means of laundering money for influence peddling. That's all it is. That's all it is. There's no no one, no one that uh, is a former politician is giving an $800,000 speech because that's what the dollars and cents dictate. Uh, anyway. But we, none of the major networks want to get into this. CBS did, on uh, Sunday's Face the Nation, mention this. And, and, and here's the totality, I think, of what CBS was willing to touch on the Uranium One scandal. You're looking into the Russian influence in the election. There have been reports this week about Russian efforts to uh, try to influence the Obama administration and try to influence perhaps Hillary Clinton through donations to the Clinton Foundation with respect to the purchase of uranium. Is that something that the Intelligence Committee should look at, that you're interested in looking at? So we need, we need to finish up the report that we have now, but that is an unsettled issue. That's something that the FBI has, has pursued for now a decade to try to determine what influence was done. As you know, there are several Russians that have been uh, arrested for this or have been charged uh, on these crimes of trying to be able to influence uh, the purchase of uh, in the deal on uranium uh, with the Obama administration through the Clinton Foundation. Uh, there are unanswered questions that should be answered. Okay, there are unanswered questions. Not not a lot more than that from them. That's kind of it, right? And he, and he asked, by the way, he just asked the question. They didn't do like a full segment on it or anything. Anyway, all right. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll do a quick update on the the feud between Trump and those who are saying he doesn't treat Gold Star families well. And the latest with, uh, and then we'll get into the Niger ambush in the next hour, which will be a very interesting segment. So definitely stay around. We'll be right back. I had hoped that the debate, the controversy, the feud, all this stuff about the uh, phone call from President Trump to Gold Star widow Maisha Johnson, I I had hoped that we had put this issue uh, in the rear view after last week when there was this slew of allegations that the Trump, uh, that, that the Trump, that Trump, in cold-hearted fashion, called and was 
disrespectful to a gold star widow and it just didn't ring true didn't make any sense i didn't buy it now did she think that trump was imprecise in his speech did he stumble or something what was his tone not what she expected she thought that's all possible and certainly this uh, this woman in her time of grief ms johnson is entitled to deference and and is and would be entitled to privacy if the media would leave her alone and if a congresswoman hadn't decided to make this a national issue but now I mean that's that's tough I mean she's entitled to privacy but I don't think she's going to get much of it right at least not right now not while she's still useful for attacking Trump which is what this is all about that is what this is all about it's about attacking Trump it's not about the sanctity of gold star family members uh, in the view of Republicans or in the view of Democrats or no 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 this is just about attacking Trump that is the purpose of this entire series of of stories, and it's why there was such a fascination and a push on this story last week. And we, once again today, we have more. We have more interviews with Miss Johnson. If this were about giving her time to grieve and uh, being respectful of the very difficult situation she, she is in, I would think the media would probably leave her alone but no she is now being elevated as a specifically as uh, a, a person who is useful for attacking the presidency just as uh, uh kazir khan last summer was as a gold star father elevated by the media specifically for the purposes of attacking president trump and attacking the administration and as i've said to you this is a long-standing Democrat tactic, right? In the, in the first half of this hour, we talked about the discovery of new widespread problems during Republican administrations that existed during Democrat administrations, but it just is a narrative construct. It's a, it's a tool. Sometimes they talk about it, sometimes they don't. Well, now we're talking about how Democrats like to uh, traffic in and exploit grief. They like to exploit grief. Uh, this has been going on for a long time, and as, as I mentioned, this happened with a few of the uh, 9-11 widows many years ago. Uh, I think it was four or five of the thousands of family members decided to become very, very political, and if you challenged them, you were a bad person. Well, right now, they want to keep giving as many interviews as possible to gold star widow Maisha Johnson because she obviously didn't like the call she had with President Trump. I don't know how much of that has now been influenced or how much she has been influenced by uh, Congresswoman Wilson, who was present and started this whole thing. Uh, but here is what Ms. Johnson had to say about the situation. The president said that he knew what he signed up for, but it hurts anyways. And I was it made me cry because. I was very angry at the the tone of his voice and how he said it. Like he 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 couldn't remember my husband's name. The only way he remembered my husband's name because he told me he had my husband report in front of him, and that's when he actually said La David. I heard him stumbling on trying to remember my husband's name. What did you say to the president? I I didn't I didn't say anything. Now. A, f a few things here. And I th I'm hoping this is the last time I'm going to talk to you about this on this show. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to not 
include because there's nothing else really to say at this point. Uh, at least I don't think there is. Uh, maybe something will come to mind. But here's here's what what I immediate what immediately jumps out at me about all of this. Uh, one is we've already dealt with this. He knew what he was signing up for. Many of you called in. Many of you who have served yourselves or family members uh, who have served, and and that that is an expression meant to convey the. Uh, the fortitude and the courage of character to choose, to choose to do this, to take these risks for your country, and that it was a willful act of courage, a willful act of bravery and service and sacrifice to the nation. And so it is to honor that decision to say that it was, uh, he knew what he was doing or he knew what he was signing up for. Or he he was there because he wanted to be there. And I've even heard now, and I've gone back and read some other speeches and eulogies and discussions of soldiers lost in battle and that is a that is a recurring theme so that was a misunderstanding and to me that that strikes me as uh as completely it that that is what that is what it is it is a misunderstanding meaning that he was trying to convey a sentiment but his intentions were good this being the president and miss uh johnson miss maisha johnson was interpreting in a way that made her upset and, and that's a shame and that's terrible and, and you know, that's not this is not the way it should have gone but this is what happened and it, it was i don't believe it was the president's intent at all and i don't think it makes him a bad person that he didn't uh manage to convey himself perfectly in these circumstances it's difficult look i just went to one of my uh oldest friends in the whole world one of my dearest friends growing up for many many years i just went to his father's funeral a few weeks back, uh, and it was actually I was I was at the the wake, um, and I spoke to the family, and I'm not going to lie, I'm somebody who spends three hours a day speaking really without notes extemporaneously on radio, and held to account for what I say. It's all recorded, and people are hearing it all across the country. But seeing somebody who had been a friend of mine since I was seven or eight years old, and grew up with, and knew the parents very well, and seeing that his dad had passed away. I, I tried to be uh, supportive. I tried to be eloquent, but I'm not going to lie. I, I don't think I, you know, what do you say? I, I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, there's only so many things you can say, only so many ways to say it. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm just bringing this up to indicate that it, these are not easy situations. These are not easy things to talk about for anyone, which is why General Kelly, specifically in the case of somebody lost in a combat situation, right? It's not somebody who passed away peacefully, you know, at a, at a at an elderly age after a great and fulsome life and lots of grandkids and everything. Oh, somebody dies in combat. He's got a wife and kids at home. I mean, this is this is really hard. And this is why General Kelly was saying, look, don't do it. But the president thought that he could do it. He tried to handle it and he did the best that he could. Okay, But there was no ill intent. And so you would think he'd let it go. And then on the on the point about the name, I mean, here's what here's look, here's what the command, the commander in chief himself says about this. I spoke of the name of the young man, uh, and I, it, was, it was a really, it, it's, a, it's a very tough call. Those are the toughest calls. These tough. are tougher than uh, dealing with the heads of countries, believe me. These are very, very hard calls. They're sad, and, and sometimes, you know, the grieving is so incredible. Yes, I mean, all, all of that is true. It's very difficult, and as I was saying, at a much, uh, at a much lesser level, because, you know, I was in a situation where I was just 
there is a when somebody passes away at a certain age, you know, with uh, with a very fulsome life with loving family around him and everything. You know, you can say that this is we should all be so lucky, right? That's very it's very different than when you're somebody who's in the prime of of his or her life and and died on the field of combat and leaves behind a family and people that really needed that person. You know, I mean, that, that's a it's a different kind of loss. But I'm just saying, even in the situation of the person who's lived a full life it's difficult to and as somebody you're very close to it's difficult to express yourself perfectly in these circumstances so then you add to it what the president's trying to do here and i just i do think that it's look it could have been handled better but the president was trying he was trying and he and it's because he does respect the military so much on this point about the name and saying the name and whether he stumbled on the name okay the president did not know this uh this soldier Personally, he is expressing his condolences as commander in chief. I'm sure that as he was there, he probably had a sheet in front of him with the name and background. I mean, that's just you would expect that, right? I mean, the commander in chief, when somebody comes in and they're about to take an order from the commander in chief or rather they're about to have a discussion with the commander in chief. You know, he's going to get a sheet beforehand on who this person would be. The president can't know everyone's name and everything that's going on, right? So he's going to, I'm not saying he should have known the soldier's name. I'm just saying he probably had a sheet in front of him and he might have stumbled as he was reading it or he might have paused for a second to make sure that he got it right. He might have thought, wait, is it David or Le David? I'm just, these are, these are possibilities. And I'm surmising here, but no ill intent. There was no ill intention. I've yet to see how that could be, uh, a takeaway from any of this. And then we get to why I'm really wanting to talk to you about this. Cause I know the levels of analysis here and we're, we're getting very into the weeds of, of something that perhaps should have been left behind last week as a, as a topic of conversation in the media and on the show. And I'm hoping to leave it, leave it behind today. One more thing, the exploitation of grief here by the media in the case of, uh, Maisha Johnson is just unconscionable. And it just goes to show you that they will they will do anything. They will take any position. They will hold any posture if it allows them to be damaging toward the Trump administration. They will go from all gold star families are sacred. How dare President Trump upset one of them to two days later. General Kelly doesn't count as a gold star father because he works for Trump. That was basically their attitude. Oh, and he's a racist, too, by the way. And he grew up in sexist, racist Boston. I mean, the things that were said about General Kelly by people with big platforms paid a lot of money, a lot of influence. People like Lawrence O'Donnell and Joy Reid, who would have very close connections to a Democrat administration, they'd be able to get Hillary on the phone if she had been president. The things they said about General Kelly were disgusting. And it just was further proof, further evidence of how the media has no principles that are not subject to the whims of, of any given political moment. They are an attack machine for an ideology. And the, yeah, there's some opposition. There's shows like this one. There's talk radio. There's Fox News. But we're in the we're in the 10% category. We're about 10% of the media voice out there, maybe 20 at best. And they're all the rest of it. And they pretend to be honest and forthright and have no agenda whatsoever, which is just nonsense. But it's really uh, grotesque watching how they have positioned themselves, how the main networks and the biggest newspapers in the country 
I've been trying to use once again a gold a, a gold star family member in this case a gold star widow before it was a gold star father as a as a weapon against the administration instead of just holding this up as an area of American civic life of of, of American uh, life in general that is sacrosanct they 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 don't nothing is sacrosanct to them they don't care they don't care if it hurts Trump certainly they don't care. It just goes to the, the depth of the animosity here. It is a it is a, in a state of pathology. I mean, it's it's a delusion. It's they have created this alternate reality where Trump is really going to destroy America unless they do unless they're willing to destroy anything to stop him. Even the reverence with which we hold those and the families of those who uh, serve this country in uniform. That will be sacrificed on the left to the anti-Trump narrative. It's it's appalling. All right. I'm hoping we'll leave it there on that and uh, no more needs be said on it. Uh, if you have any thoughts on it, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. The uh, ambush in Niger, big news story today on that or lots of news stories today on that. We'll get into the uh, follow-up, the investigation, the politics on it. That's coming up in the next hour and you're going to want to hear that, I think. So stay right here. All right, team, we've got David in uh, Mississippi on the line. David, great to have you. Hello. Hello, sir. Um, I I wanted to call about that call to the Gold Star Mom by Trump. I I think he was set up on that call. I think somebody needs to ask that woman, how did she get in that car? Did they use the pre-call to the mother to see if she would accept the call, and she just put put these people in the car with her so they could all hear him talking about it and uh, then they used it for their own purpose so you think that this was all a setup yes sir i i wonder why the uh, the congresswoman wilson i think is supposed to be a or is reportedly a, a family friend and so I, mean, I would i don't know i mean i would think she'd be a very close family friend i mean i could t- look Within my family, although I, I can't speak for for the um, the Johnson family, but I, I wouldn't if I had lost a family member in combat, I, I wouldn't have a member of of Congress with me that I'm aware of. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know what procedures are here. I, I don't know. Well, well, Gen- General Kelly said that before every call by the president, there's a a pre call to see if they would accept the call. Yes, and and uh, they need to ask the. Um, Congresswoman, did how did she get in there? Did she know that this was going to happen when she got inside that car? Also, by the way, wouldn't and, uh, the Congresswoman want to let the president, I mean, you know, listen, I don't know, listening in to the call for Congresswoman Wilson, to me, that just strikes me as this is supposed to be a, a moment between the commander in chief and this gold star, uh, this gold star uh, widow. Exactly. It's not not supposed to be, you know, for Congresswoman Wil- Wilson to weigh in on or I, I don't know. But look, I, I'm not there. And you know, another well, part of this, David, uh, yeah. is I feel like we're getting dragged into this, and the reality is that there's really not a lot of well, there there, other than I hope this I hope this woman finds uh, some peace and healing. Thing. And look, they've raised I think uh, they've raised a lot of money for the family, which is a good thing. Um, yes, you know, well, I, I, I agree. I, I feel sorry for the the lady, and uh, but I I I do not like how this went. It doesn't seem. Like it should have happened this way. No, it definitely shouldn't have happened this way. I mean, it's it's a lot of, a lot of uh, back and forth over this, and 
I, look, I think a lot of negative energy yeah. around this whole discussion well, that shouldn't be there. I, I, I just wanted to put in my two cents. No, I hear you, sir. Thank you very uh, much for calling in. Uh, I, I think that we can all agree pretty, pretty generally, and I think there's widespread agreement on this, that Gold Star families, this, this should not be an area of politicization. And, you know, I, I think that, the, look, the Democrats really did get this, uh, get this going with... Uh, inviting uh, Kazir Khan to speak at the DNC. Someone speaks at a partisan political convention, they're going to get pushback from the other side. And to then say, oh, but they're a Gold Star family member, it's for the Democrats who put him up to it, that's a little disingenuous. I mean, he's allowed to speak, but people are allowed to respond and not be told, oh, you're a bad person. Jim in Ohio. Welcome, sir. How you doing, Buck? Good. We got about 40 seconds. Okay, well, the only the reason why I'm calling is um, I listened to a segment on uh, a couple of days ago that you uh, siege of Vienna. Uh, we're doing about the, the siege of Vienna, right? And I was wondering if you ever did a, did one on uh, did any research on uh, the Battle of Ankara between the Ottomans and the Timurid Empire? Oh, Tamerlane, right? Came in and right. kicked some Ottoman butt. Right. Yeah, he wanted to be the next Genghis Khan. Right. Well, yeah, I know a bit about it. I mean, I could do a segment on it, maybe. I think people forget Tamerlane or Timor. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, you, you, hardly, you hardly hear it anymore, but uh, the reason, I, I've done a lot of research on it, and but I don't have the full details. All right, I'll do some research on it, Jim. We're running into a break now, but I'll be right back. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The ambush of U.S. Special Forces soldiers in Niger is not Trump's Benghazi. I want to walk through what we know now, uh, what's been reported in in addition uh, to what we had already been told about how we lost four SF soldiers uh, in Niger, but I I wanted to start with the political because this is just completely out of control. I'm hearing all these narratives. I'm seeing all these stories about how there's a there's a cover up. Why didn't we know who didn't know? Why weren't we made aware of this? And the answer is, if you read the newspaper enough. Or let me rephrase this, if you were curious enough to run a Google search on this. As a member of the Senate, as a member of the House, you would know whatever you you pretend now not to know. It was out there for years that we had troops in Niger, and yet you hear from Graham and Schumer, Republican and a Democrat, the following on the Sunday shows. They were there to help allies. I didn't know there was a thousand troops in Niger. John McCain is right to tell the military because this is an endless war without boundaries, no limitation on time and geography. You got to tell us more. You heard Senator Graham there. He didn't know we had a thousand troops in Niger. Did you? Uh, No, I did not. Why didn't he know? It's not a secret. And in fact, there are letters from the White House to the Senate, Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, telling them exactly what's going on in Niger. And then there's also the behind-closed-doors classified stuff, I'm sure, as well. But the we have troops in Niger and there are hundreds of them, that is not a secret. That has been out there, front-page news stories, New York Times and others, for years. For years. 
So what's this? Oh, we, we didn't know. And, and, and now that they're putting all this pressure on the military, they've got to tell us more about what's going on here. They've got to tell us more of the of the facts as though there's some conspiracy within the military. Look, they just lost four of four of theirs. Right. U.S. military is looking into this FBI knows investigating, but that's because we had four Americans killed abroad. There, there's no reason to believe at all thus far that there is a cover up that there's anything the only foul play here came from the enemy who ambushed at a you know at a five to one advantage our soldiers in a conflict zone that's the foul play these these savages of the islamic state who you know hide among civilians like cowards and then when no one's looking they they come out and they start taking shots and then when we go out to find them or we send our military the best in the world to go track them down, they, they, they hide among women and children. That's the foul play. There's nothing on our side of this, on the U.S. side, that raises any flags at all based on what I have seen. And yet you have U.S. military, you have General Dunford out there, a four-star, trying to say, look, we're, we're getting you as much, as much as we can here. Uh, with regard to Congress... I've heard criticism of when I provide enough information, and the way I've taken that is to say, if if the Congress doesn't believe that they're not that they're getting sufficient information, then I need to double my efforts to provide them with information. So, you know, without going through what people may have known at any given point in time about this operation or other operation, I mean, the one thing I can tell you is that Secretary Mattis and I are committed to make sure that we satisfy the needs of the Congress for the information they need to provide oversight. And so we, we're looking in the mirror saying, okay, uh, we thought we were doing all right. Uh, what's most important is how the Congress feels about that. And so we need to double our communications efforts, and we'll do that. Okay, fine. But Congress is playing games here because Schumer, Graham, they should know about this. They did know about this. And if they forgot, that's on them. And now I, I see right now, this is a perfect example. Here I am on uh, on air, and I can see on the screen here at CNN, U.S. General adjusts timeline in ambush, but short on answers. This is a battlefield situation. This is, when people start to talk about Benghazi, I, I just I want to just pull my hair out. I'm like, what, what do you? How does this? Benghazi was weeks, if not months, of repeated requests for additional security for a high-profile civilian member of the United States government, a U.S. diplomat, an ambassador. And those around him and, uh, you know, contract personnel that are there to keep them safe. But this, this is not this is not a comparable situation. At all. And then you had 13 hours and repeated requests for backup and backup doesn't come and the stand down order. And also. You know, this is what do they think was going to happen, given the deteriorating security situation in Benghazi, all the requests for additional uh Support and security didn't come, and eventually something you know we lost four of ours, including a an ambassador and some elite operators within the United States government. So what's what's the similarity here with the special forces? I mean, this is yeah. Whenever we lose our troops, it is it is terrible. It is a tragedy. We're also losing troops in Afghanistan. We are still taking casualties in Afghanistan. There, we're we're tracking down the Taliban. There, we're we're very much at war in that country. Niger is a conflict zone. 
You have terrorist insurgencies, multiple terrorist insurgencies operating there. People who are running around saying, oh, well, what were we doing in Niger? It's very straightforward. It's very open. There's not a lot of what's going on here. I mean, look, we can't we don't know and should not know at the tactical level what targets they're going after, what specific assistance we're giving the Nigerian or the Chadian military. And, you know, there is that aspect of this, too. There needs to be OPSEC. There's operational security here. We, we're not going to know every detail. People say, like, oh, you know, who are they going to meet? And what was you know, what was their timetable for the meeting and everything? We're talking about special forces operators in the field engaging in a meet in a place where it's you know rampant jihadist groups running around i mean it's a huge country so i'm not it's not like there are terrorists everywhere but there are, are a few big terrorist threats in the country and you won't see this report in many places but aqim al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb which also operates in niger got a lot stronger and a lot deadlier as a result of the giant weapons bazaar that opened up in libya after Hillary Clinton and her top people at the State Department figured, let's just topple Gaddafi and see what happens. You'll notice how, you know, Rachel Maddow last week can run this whole story about how Trump's travel ban might have affected chatty and military cooperation uh, like six or seven hundred miles away from the incident of the actual ambush. Right. I mean, it's just nonsense. I wonder over at MSNBC when they're going to say, oh, and by the way, the terrorists in the region, the terrorist groups in the region have a lot more in terms of arms and munitions. For example, the kind of things that they would use for a complex ambush. They have a lot more of those because of decisions made in the Obama administration, in that White House, and at the top of Foggy Bottom with Hillary Clinton running the State Department in Libya. And this is not a theory, that's a fact. The whole region got worse and deadlier with regard to terrorism because of the decision to overturn or to overthrow Gaddafi. And then just see what happens. You have AQIM acting there. You have the Islamic State in the in the Sahara. And you have Boko Haram and a couple of other groups as well. You've got all these jihadist entities that are operating in this country. They're all trying to kidnap Westerners and kill Americans. Kidnap and kill. Kidnap and kill. That is their mission set. That's what they do. That's what the bad guys are doing there. So that there were, I think there were four uh, Nigerian that were killed, eight wounded soldiers, I mean now, and, and then four of ours, um, four of ours were killed in combat. It's terrible, but they were killed in combat by an enemy that we face in Niger, that we face all over uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and an enemy that's all over the world in, in different places. Salafi jihadism, Islamic radicalism, whatever you want to call it. But that's what happened. These, this, oh, we don't have the details yet. It's just they're trying to keep this going. And, oh, let's talk more about the Gold Star Widow, by the way. And, oh, let's also talk more about how we don't have the full timeline here. Okay, Sergeant LeDavid Johnson was, uh, his body was found and taken by U.S. forces a mile from the site of the initial ambush, he may, he may have gotten separated. I mean, we'll find out as much as we should find out or as much as we can find out about the tactical side of this engagement. We know that it was 50 to 60 Islamic State of the Sahara terrorists that lined up in an ambush against 10 of our guys, 12 of our guys. And it was an ambush situation. And they were in, as reported, uh, 
thin-skinned vehicles. They weren't in armored vehicles. So, you know, the initial engagement, we might have lost three or four soldiers quickly. I mean, again, we'll get into more of the timeline. I don't know. I'm not there. And we still need some more reporting. How quickly did the French jets get on the scene? Initially, it was 30 minutes. Now I'm hearing two hours. But were they were they allowed to use bombs right away? They said yes. Then they said no. And then they said, well, actually, the problem wasn't whether they were allowed to use bombs. The problem was the bombs may have because there was such close contact with the enemy they didn't want to drop a 500 pound bomb and possibly take out one or more of our guys but this is all fog of war this is all the heat of combat this is counterinsurgency warfare that we are talking about this is not a a burned out diplomatic post that should have gotten a lot more security, and that was ignored despite its pleas for months. That's Benghazi. This is, we lose soldiers fighting against the barbarians of the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and these other groups in lots of countries. And each one is a tragedy, and we feel for the family of those who are lost, and we should support those who remain behind, and we should do everything we can to comfort them and to, and to help them. I mean, I, I, I go every, uh, every year to a friend of mine's charity, the, the Red Circle Foundation. The whole purpose of it, a friend of mine is a Navy SEAL, the whole purpose is to raise money for the families of those who are special operators who fall in combat. That's, and they just raise money, pay for their, whatever needs to be paid for, they just get the money. Right? We need to help those who are left behind after somebody is killed in battle killed in action but in terms of all the politics around this and we need more answers and we need it's a war we're in a war against radical islam we are we have been taking many thousands of casualties for years now since 2001 and we just lost four of our bravest and best americans to uh, these evil uh, nihilistic wannabe theocrats of the Islamic State of the Sahara. We're not even totally sure what the group was yet. But that's it, everyone. There's nothing really to politicize here. They stayed. They didn't leave until they had the bodies of all those that were killed on our side. And it was a it was a bad combat situation. Our guys got caught up. Was there? Did they get a tip off from a local villager? Was it some problem with the routes and times? I mean, that's that's all for the military to sort out and deal with, and try to keep the next SF team in Niger or anywhere else safe and out of this kind of situation. But there's no such thing as deploying our soldiers into a conflict zone that's entirely safe, whether it's Niger or uh, you know Iraq, Afghanistan. The Philippines, I mean, we've got SF teams training people all over the world. And the moment that you add into that, I mean, and they could be targeted, I should note. I mean, we could have an SF team in Germany targeted by some psycho Islamic state uh, devotee, right? I mean, these are, our, our military is always a target in this war. But the moment that you're talking about a country that is in danger of being overrun by jihadism, like Niger, where the central government can't get the fight done itself and needs our help and needs regional allies. Yeah, there's danger there. There's danger there. And I just think it's 
uh, it does a disservice for politicians, including Republicans now, to say, oh, well, you know, how, how could this have happened? It, how could it happen? We've got small teams of special forces going into areas where different jihadist entities operate that are trying to kill our guys, and sometimes they will manage to do that. They are the enemy, right? This isn't like a... Uh, this isn't the political situation that they're trying to make it into, and it's it's very uh, bothersome, especially when you see Republicans who can't seem to sort this one out. I mean, I expect the Democrats, for political reasons, to just, you know... Go back and look at the Yemen raid very early in the Trump administration, which was planned by the Obama administration. Oh, we're not getting answers on that. Oh, we're not getting answers on that. When you go after terrorist targets, sometimes bad things are going to happen because these are very bad people we're going after. They're making this much more complicated than it is. Tragedy, yes. But we're fighting these evil you-know-whats all over the world. All right. We're going to run to a break here. I'll be right back. So I wanted to talk to you about, about taxes today because I don't like taxes. I don't like paying them. I don't like dealing with them. Uh, I'm, I'm anti-tax, and I'm not afraid to say it here on the Buck Sexton Show. I don't like giving the government my money. I'm on one of those. No, Ty, no, Amy, they're with me. No, no. I'm one of these people like, I wish I could give. I wish I could give more in taxes. By the way, anyone who says that, off my Christmas list. I just never. That's completely unacceptable. You want to give more? Give more. You know what I mean? There's literally a place to do it. So people that do this whole thing of, oh, I wish I could pay more in taxes. Yeah, I'm sure you do, buddy. Go for it. Let's see you do it. But then when you push them on this, they'll say, well, it's not about it's not about me paying more in taxes. It's about everybody paying more. Oh, I think we should all just chip in more. We should just pay our fair share. Let's make it fair. Just pay the fair share. Uh, I'm seeing now that there's... I don't know. It's it's tough to analyze when over the weekend, 401k limits may be changed, which is a it's a terrible idea. I think you want to encourage Americans just even apart from the actual nuts and bolts numbers and economics of it. You want to um, encourage Americans to save and to plan for their own retirement as much as possible. This is this is very important. If the tax code is not going to be a flat tax, don't start saying, oh, 401k, you know, we're going to get rid of that. Okay, so there's that. There is that. And then uh, they said that they're going to, Trump said that that's not going to happen, by the way. Trump said that it's going to be fine, that there won't be any changes for it. So, okay, I, I guess that's where we are now. This is, it's a moving target we're talking about here. But then on the rates for millionaires, this is a little, a little popular. See, we're doing a quick, a quick segment here on on taxes because I don't, you know, we don't even know how 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 upset or, or or happy can I be about what the tax changes are supposed to be? It's not really tax reform, by the way. It's tax cuts when we don't even know what the numbers are, right? They haven't even put forward a bill yet that is supposed to be our. Our our starting point, really. I mean, we, we've seen some stuff, but. But if they raise rates for people that are actually over a million dollars there, see, this is something that, especially when you're dealing with some coastal elites, they're like, good gosh, making $300,000 a year is nothing like making a million. If they raise rates on people making over a million, a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, I think they could pay a little more. I think, that, I think that's because once you start slicing it thin enough, 
You know, because you think about this, a lot of I know it depends on where you are in the country, right? But if you are a if you are a state trooper in a lot of states, I can say on the eastern seaboard, and you, you know you work, and let's say your husband or your wife is a school teacher, you're bringing home 120, 150 k with overtime for the state trooper. I know because he used to work at the NYPD. I know what these guys make, right? I know that's not state trooper, but same idea. Are are you if you with with two incomes or? Are you wealthy? Do you have more to give to the government if you're making 100, 120, 150K? No. You're not wealthy. So that's crazy, right? But if you're making over a million, do we think that everyone's going to be too upset over uh No. I don't think so. I think that I think that, that actually I think Trump's populist bent may may uh be unveiled with a 39% tax rate on millionaires that stays, but it's actually for millionaires, not people making 200K or 150. Talk a little bit about the uh, intra-GOP feud here for just a few moments, because I think this is what, absent any major legislative achievement, which do not hold your breath for that this year, I think you're going to see a lot of Republican on Republican fighting. That's what's going to happen here. Um, And uh, Trump has said that he thinks that this is a, that that his getting involved in this, that uh, throwing his weight around and calling out Republicans who aren't doing what he wants them to do is a good thing. Do you worry that this bickering and feuding gets in the way of your agenda? No, and sometimes it helps, to be honest with you. So we'll see what happens in the end. But I think actually sometimes it helps. Sometimes it gets people to do what they're supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, that's the way it is. I just want what's right. And I think for the most part they want what's right, too. So we'll see what happens. But I do believe we have the votes for health care at the appropriate time. And I think that we're going to have the votes for taxes. And I will say the fact that health care is so difficult, I think, makes the taxes easier. The Republicans want to get it done. So there's Trump's version of the intra-GOP feuding. And he says that it's a good thing that he calls them out. He says that it uh, makes sense, that it's the, it's helpful to this whole process. But there's one feud that I think steps outside of that. I don't think that the McConnell-Bannon inside the GOP intramural political warfare that's going on is about getting better policies. Or at least it's not about getting uh, agreement on legislation. That There's something else. There's something else going on here. Um, and I wanted to get into that. You have, first of all, Bannon was at the Value Voters Summit talking about McConnell specifically. Steve Bannon, formerly senior advisor of the president, now, well, still kind of a senior advisor of the president, just an unofficial one. He's outside of government, but from what I've read, he still speaks to the president a few times a week. Here is what Bannon, here is what Bannon had to say about McConnell. Now, Mitch, I, I don't know if you're watching today. I don't know if you're watching. I've been getting calls. It's like, it's like before the Ides of March, right? The only question is, and this is just an analogy or metaphor, whatever you want to call it, they're just looking to find out who's going to be Brutus to your Julius Caesar. Now, uh, a, a, I'm not, not sure I'd go with the terminology here that uh, Bannon is, is, you know, at this at this point in time, I think we could stay away from, I know it's a huge historical and, and, and actually literary reference as well, but I'm just, we need to stay away from the 
violence in politics stuff, I think. Just as a general rule. I'm not saying it's a huge deal, but I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done that personally. McConnell, for his part, though, was like, here's McConnell had to say. Let's talk about former uh, Trump advisor Steve Bannon. He declared war on you and the rest of the Republican establishment this week. What do you make of uh, Bannon recruiting candidates with the explicit goal, sir, of taking you out as leader? Well, you know, this element has been out there for a while. They cost us five uh, Senate seats in 2010 and 2012 by nominating people who couldn't win in November. In order for the president's agenda to advance, we have to be able to elect people who support the agenda. And so these inter-party skirmishes are all about whether or not we can nominate a candidate who can win in November. Mm, that's, that's, one, that's one way to go on this. But what about the Republicans who already hold office who clearly lied to their constituencies when it came to the repeal of Obamacare, for example. John McCain ran on repealing Obamacare. John McCain has made sure that Obamacare will remain unchanged. So what about them? What do we do about those Republicans who are not, in fact, willing to uh, keep their promises to their constituents? It just seems to me as like uh, this is where we're put in an unwinnable situation here. McConnell is on the one hand saying, oh, I can't get rid of the candidates who can't win the elections. And, you know, he's saying that uh, they need to keep some establishment, well, mostly establishment folks in office, but nothing happens legislatively. And he says that Trump won't get anything legislatively without us. And on the other hand, you've got the Bannon saying that we need just all-out war in the GOP establishment. The, the problem with Bannon's approach, as I see it, and I could be wrong, everyone's been wrong in politics the last couple of years, so hey, I should jump in, right? The water's warm. The problem with the Bannon's, Bannon approach is that if he's not right, and if in fact we do lose some winnable seats, and if the Republican Party finds itself out of power because of the intra-party feuding, then he will have empowered the Democrats and you'll have a Republican Party that will be left with no accomplishments to point to, really. Because everything that Trump will have, with the exception of judicial nominations, everything Trump will have accomplished in office, if the Democrats come in, guess what? They're just going to sit there and wait and assume that they can win the next presidential election and they'll undo all the regulatory reform. Everything that Trump has done so far is very undoable except for Gorsuch and some of the uh, federal judicial nominations. But keep in mind, Obama's already stacked the federal courts with left-wing appointees. So at best, you're just trying to undo uh, some of that damage. At best, you're trying to balance it out. But it's by no means a situation where Republicans could look at the federal judiciary and say, oh, we're in great shape there. Something's got to give here. Republicans either need to get something done in the Congress, or there has to be a throw the bums out movement, and we'll see where the chips fall at that point. But that's not, now you're talking about leaping off the uh, the edge into the political abyss a little bit. I'm not really sure what that looks like. I don't know if there's enough support for Trumpism within the Republican Party to take that leap of faith. Right? Me over Hillary, you know, Trump over Hillary, rather. Uh, yeah, sure, I could see that. 
Trump over Hillary is a um, easy for most Republicans. That's an easy call. But all these candidates that Bannon may put up against Republicans who have uh, won, you know, is he, is he going to primary people? Is he going to try to primary Mitch McConnell? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yeah. Ty is giving me a big yes. I mean, that's what he's saying he's going to do, right? What happens then? Because then the, then the storyline becomes if they lose some, if they lose control of the House and the, and the Senate to the Democrats, just keep in mind, then the Bannonites are going to be saying, well, you know, it's because of the establishment that we got nothing done. Well, you can start to see how at some point we realize that we never get anything done and there's always somebody else to blame for it. And that's a problem. So we've got to keep our eye on this one. I'm not really sure how this is going to shake out yet. Sean Davis of the Federal is going to hang out with us in a minute. And then the next uh, hour after this, we've got a lot more to talk about, including bullying and a big anti-bullying ad. Stay with me. Be right back. All right, it's time for some truth bombs, courtesy of our friend Sean Davis at The Federalist. He is the co-founder over there. Check out thefederalist.com. Among my favorite sites uh, of opinion, Mr. Davis, great to have you back, sir. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. We have a new PSA, courtesy of CNN, wanting to establish that they are big-time, big-J journalists who are all about the facts and just the facts. Please, sir, play it. This is an apple. Some people might try to tell you that it's a banana. They might scream banana, banana, banana over and over and over again. They might put banana in all caps. You might even start to believe that this is a banana. But it's not. This is an apple. (laughs) Well, there you go. CNN making some strides here in the facts and truth department. Although I think that a committed leftist, Sean, would argue that whether one is whether whether something is a banana or an apple is really a social construct. But nonetheless, uh, I think that their whole we just go with just the facts thing doesn't really stand up to much inquiry. Oh, no, I, I found the whole thing hilarious. And I actually had to double check that that wasn't a parody video made by someone who hates CNN because it was so ridiculous. I mean, this is a network who had on its show a show that's called Reliable Sources it had as a featured guest Dan Rather. Now, once you've had Dan Rather as a reliable source on your, on your show, Reliable Sources, maybe you don't get to go out there and beat your chest about how good you are at telling the difference between apples and bananas. I think it does tell us something about who still runs the, the mainstream media, though, because Dan Rather uh, should be somebody that has never asked his opinion on journalism ever, you would think, but the people that made Dan Rather, the people that built him up, some of them are still in very senior positions and very powerful places in media. And that's why Dan Rather gets a pass and people at CNN that make stuff up get a pass, too. Right. Well, I mean, it, it's fascinating. This is the same network that uh, under fire for pushing a whole bunch of fake stories had to fire three people um, for a completely false story on Russia and Trump collusion. Uh, this is a network that regularly gets its gun facts wrong. Uh, it, it's just, it strains credulity, and uh, I, I just got the best laugh out of it today. So I would like, I'd like to thank CNN for that. Like, I can't trust them to give me hard news, but I can trust them to crack me up every now and again. We're speaking to Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist here. And, and Sean, speaking about getting the facts straight, and I've been talking about this over the course of the show, but I wanted your take on... This this whole, oh, the Senate now wants to do the, all this oversight over the Niger counterterrorism mission that U.S. Special Forces has. This is not, this mission 
is not a new mission. It is not a hard, to, particularly hard to describe mission. It's actually, as these things go, been been pretty transparent with, within the realm of what we should know versus some things we probably shouldn't know. Uh, but now all of a sudden it's like there's this rogue elephant running around and they need to get a handle on U.S. special forces in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's like, no, that's actually not what's going on here. This is just a bad thing that happened in a country where we're fighting against terrorists. Right. Well, so this goes back uh, more than four years. I think Obama first disclosed to Congress in 2013 that we had 100 troops over there. And, and the stated purpose was that um, troops in the, in the Lake Chad Basin region between um, uh, Niger and Nigeria, that Boko Haram and, and ISIS are big there. And so the local forces needed help getting trained up, figuring out how to deal with the terrorist elements there. So we sent people and we slowly sent, you know, 50 more, 100 more, to the point that uh, we started with 100 in 2013, and as of June, I think we had, according to a letter that Trump sent to the Speaker of the House and the Senate President Pro Tem, we had 645 troops in Niger. I think we had 300 in Cameroon. Uh, And what they're trying to do is deal with the terrorist elements there. This is not new. There have been hearings on this every year from AFRICOM, from senior uh, Defense Department officials. Everybody in Congress has gotten information about this. So this new game they're playing where they pretend they were left in the dark, uh, I find shameful. No, these are just a bunch of people who actually weren't interested and didn't care about it at all because it wasn't big and sexy like Syria or Iran or Russia. Um, so now they're just pretending they were never told, even though the facts say otherwise. Sean, where do you think we are right now with uh, getting past the whole debate over uh, the gold star widow and Trump and all this. Do you think we can move on? I mean, Trump should probably move on from this for a whole bunch of reasons, but I feel like the media will find a way to keep this going as long as possible. Well, of course they will. But I'll say, you know, what? after an eight year hiatus of talking about the cost of uh, foreign military adventurism, I'm glad we're actually having a discussion now about what it costs when we send people to far-flung regions uh, to fight terrorists or to to fight other nations' battles. Because for eight years, from 2009 to uh, very, very early 2017, we weren't getting daily updates on death tolls. We weren't hearing about the pain and loss suffered by Gold Star families. Cindy Sheehan went from being a celebrity to being a nobody overnight as soon as Barack Obama became president. So while I think the media is just absolutely absurd in how they handle this stuff, I'm glad that they've rediscovered uh, that war has a cost, it has a human cost, and it's something we should all be talking about. We just shouldn't be doing it in these blatant political terms like the media are trying to do. And I should remind everybody that this isn't the first time that a U.S. military operation has uh, has gone bad in the sense that we, we have lost a, a soldier or soldiers. And this immediately was politicized as like Trump's Trump's Benghazi or, you know, Trump has done something terrible here or the administration's asleep at the wheel. When you had, uh, I believe it was a Navy SEAL um, back in what was this back in February uh, that there was a raid in Yemen. Do you remember this, Sean? It was against Al Qaeda's branch in Yemen. And like the New York Times reported this as risky from the start and costly in, in the end. And there was all this outcry over why would we why would U.S. special operations be involved in Yemen? And, well, it, because we're trying to kill al Qaeda terrorists. Right. And they tried doing the same thing then. I mean, that was an operation that had been 
I believe, identified by the previous administration, planned by it, uh, and the plans were still on the table uh, when Trump came in. Uh, the thing went sideways, and suddenly that was Trump's fault. They tried to Benghazi him on this, on that. They're trying to Benghazi him on this. And just the naked political nature of what they're doing, I, I honestly find disgusting. Like, let's have an honest discussion about uh, the nature of a lot of what we're doing overseas. We should talk about the costs. We should talk about the goals. But, it, it, again, for eight years, the military could not be bothered uh, with pesky things like the lives of troops lost overseas in action. And now that a Republican's office, it's in vogue again. The, the media, uh, the media could not be bothered with this, yeah. Yeah, no, they, they, just, they couldn't. They, they had too many other things to do. Uh, Jeff Zelaney was too busy asking Obama what enchanted him about uh, being president. We couldn't focus on war costs. But now that there's a Republican in, well, goodness, we're going to have these discussions now. I, I mean... Guess better late than never, I suppose. We're speaking to Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist. Check out thefederalist.com for his latest. By the way, Bo Bergdahl, Sean, um, wow. He decided that he was going to say that his treatment by the Taliban was better than his treatment by the U.S. military. That's He is he is not helping himself here. He is He, he cannot dig up. No, I, was, I, I didn't think that quote was real when I first saw it. I didn't either, no by the way. way. There's no way a man who, after being deserted, nearly cost the lives of I don't know how many servicemen, uh, one in particular I don't think will ever walk or talk uh, again, and this guy has the audacity to come out and say, you know what, um, my captors to whom I fled when I deserted the Army, they were actually better. Okay, well, let's send you back. You know, and it was a very curious argument coming from this clown. Uh, at the same time, people on his side are trying to say, well, yeah, he was dishonorably discharged, but, you know, he's already done time served. It was bad enough being with the Taliban. Well, apparently it wasn't that bad. Let's just throw him in the clink for the rest of his life, and then, you know, he can really reflect on the consequences of his garbage decision-making over the last five years. Sean, one more before we let you go. Is Congress going to get anything done before the Christmas holiday? Oh, no. No, I, I'm, I roll my eyes every time I hear about tax reform. It's a constant MacGuffin that Congress pretends it's going to do. You know, I would love if they cut taxes and fix tax code. Um, but these guys, especially in the Senate, can't even manage to work on Mondays and Fridays. So uh, my hopes aren't aren't really all that high. Everyone go check out thefederalist.com and uh, follow Sean at S-E-A-N-M-D-A-V on Twitter. Sean Davis, great to have you, sir. Thank you, my friend. All right, team, uh, we're going to be coming back up into a third hour here in which we'll talk about a big bullying PSA from Burger King. We'll talk about bullying in the next hour. We'll also talk about the omnipresence of the surveillance state. And the short version is you got a microphone and a video camera on you at all times, literally on your person and probably watching you as well. Uh, we'll get into all of that and uh, and so much more coming up in the next hour. So stay with me. Scrawny, chubby, short, queer, getting caught up in bullying, it's so easy because you're just glad that you're not being bullied. It's been hard for me to stand up for other people because I feel like I'm already a target. It's just easier to do nothing. So that was audio from a now viral anti-bullying Burger King ad that ran last week. And, And I wanted to share my thoughts on this whole situation with you as somebody who has uh, had to stand up to bullies in his younger life, has stood up to bullies on behalf of other people, and also has, because of 
my particular uh, perch in the media, a somewhat uh, cynical view of public service announcements by massive corporations. I want to bring all these things together. So here's what happens in this ad. If you haven't seen it, Burger King does hidden camera footage in a Burger King of some high school aged, uh, they say a high school junior being very clearly bullied by a few other kids roughly his age. And then they show that a lot of customers don't do anything. And then they show the same customers uh, receive a smashed or, quote, bullied uh, Whopper Jr., which is a, a burger that Burger King still serves. And they show that a vast majority of the people that get the bad burger stand, you know, stand up and say that there's a problem. But uh, only 12 percent of customers got involved with the bullying situation in front of their very eyes. Now, a, a few things here. First of all, um, and, and, and they put out some statistics in this public service announcement as well. Uh, bullying is terrible. And 30 percent of kids being bullied, school aged children being bullied in this country every year is, is far too much. But bullying has been around for as long as there have been kids gathering in groups of two or more. And it's not going to go away entirely anytime soon. Uh, and in fact, I think cyber bullying is much has made the situation much worse and much more pernicious than it was years ago. So in that way, technology has actually made bullying a, a bigger issue. And I'll talk to you about the surveillance uh, aspects of technology actually in just a few minutes here. Uh, but bullying in general, I think, is made worse by the connectivity that we all have online. But here are a few thoughts I have on just bullying as a general matter. You will notice that this is an issue that is taken up on both the left and the right. Uh, Melania Trump is uh, or this week, I believe, made a or maybe it was last week. Melania Trump has made a stop in Michigan to go with an anti-bullying campaign. And the idea seems to be that the best way to get bullying to stop is is something along the lines of a see something, say something campaign, right? You, you see someone bullied, uh, being bullied, either step in yourself or go tell an authority figure. That is absolutely a part of a solution. But I think there's a level even beneath that, meaning there, there's a more foundational issue here of teaching people across the board, when I mean people, school-age children, what it means to be honorable, uh, what it means to be a, a person of honor and integrity and not to think that somehow the more masculine virtues of standing up for those weaker than you, standing up for uh, women, especially when women are threatened by men, that there's some problem with that. Uh, and, and this is where I think the left runs off the rails on all of this. Uh, if, if you're going to be effective in standing up for somebody who is being bullied, the best way to do it is to empower people, including the bullied, to assert their own uh, right to uh, peace and quiet, assert their right to self-defense, assert their right to stand up for themselves, uh, and also to push those around or to encourage those, push is a bad term there, to encourage those around somebody being bullied to do the honorable thing, which is to stand up for that person. And I just don't hear it talk. I'm not saying that this isn't a concept that exists outside of a conservative 
liberal or a left-right paradigm. But I just think that we see this rise in, whether it's real or not, there's a perception of a rise in bullying. And then there's also this uh, desire to move away from what are what were considered, and, and it's probably a microaggression to even call them this, the masculine virtues. But, you know, I can tell you that one of my oldest friends uh, from college, I should say, one of my oldest friends, stretching my, I have friends from when I was, to this day, six or seven years old, a few of them, but one of my oldest college friends, which now seems like a long time ago, uh, I met because, really, he, he was being bullied. Uh, we were rowing, well, I was rowing, and he was a, uh, what, what we call a coxswain on the crew team, and the coxswain is always a very small guy. And literally has to be. I mean, it has to be about 120 pounds or less. Can be male, can be female, but it's a it's a slight person because they're not rowing, and so you're just dragging their weight along. You do not want to have a 250 pound coxswain, no matter how fit or wonderful or good that coxswain may be. But the cox, uh, that's what they call it. The cox on my crew team, the coxswain, uh, decided that uh, he, he well. He essentially got under the skin of somebody who was trying out for the team. And after a practice, when everyone had walked away from the shells, which are the the, the boats uh, that you row in, uh, I turn around and I see this guy actually choking out the coxswain right there. So I and I'm by myself. And so I walked over there and. I, he was lightweight crew. I was heavyweight crew. And I, well, the guy didn't really make the team. But anyway, uh, I remember pulling him off the coxswain. And he turned around to me. And I just said, look, you have no chance here. And my friend always tells the story to much laughter. But I just said, look, you have no chance. I'm twice your size. This isn't worth it. Take your hands off him and just walk away. And uh, it worked. And he did walk away. And I think he realized that, you know, putting his hands on somebody's throat over a division three collegiate athletic competition was pretty insane no matter what. And he was actually he wasn't a bad guy. He just completely lost his temper and had lost sense of where he was and what he was doing. Doesn't excuse his behavior, but, you know, this this wasn't some mass murder. I'm not going to pretend like this was a terrible person, but he was assaulting someone with no provocation. And I remember uh, weighing in on this, but it was also only possible because if need be, I was actually ready to fight on someone who was smaller than me, fight on his behalf. Uh, that same friend of mine, I should note, maybe he did rub people the wrong way, got punched in the face for being a conservative. Years later, uh, he was punched and his glasses were broken. He was a very small guy by somebody he had never met at a party just because he was a college Republican and a very vocal one. Uh, I wasn't at that party to come to his aid, but nonetheless. Uh, but I bring this up because... You know, it's not enough to tell people, yeah, you, you got to like go. What was I going to do? I was going to go r run like a quarter mile down the road and see if I could catch up with the coach in his van. They ever had left. Right. Well, I was going to I was going to report this to the administration later. There is a part of anti-bullying that is tied in with. I don't know how else to say it. The masculine chivalrous virtues of defending the weak, uh, you know, helping you know, helping uh, the elderly, defending women, especially from men. And that's that's just abandoned more and more in our culture. It's it's considered, I don't know, hyper masculine or toxic masculinity. But 
there should be a an embrace of the more masculine virtues for the purposes of you know helping somebody out who's in a physically uh, dangerous situation you know when you can and i just think we've gotten away from that and if you really want to stop bullying somebody who's imposing enough and able to intervene has to feel like they should intervene physically not just uh, go and and report it to the dean's office later on i could tell you other stories of this too but you know i don't want to get too into you know buck's greatest hits of uh, of, of anti-bullying i've always hated bullies though I, I really have a i have a deep disdain for people picking on people smaller than them and people who are mean to animals those are the two places where and especially mean to dogs i was thinking about how in any movie, when someone's mean to a dog, I'm like, well, that guy better get his later. You know, he, he, it's just I'm, I'm done. I'm done with that person. And also uh, people that pick on people who are a lot smaller and weaker than they are. It, it deeply bothers me um, and it stays with me. And actually, I can even think of sometimes when I was a lot younger and I saw somebody being bullied. And I, w- I, never, I will tell you, I never bullied anybody myself, which I'm, I guess, kind of proud of because I'm telling you. But there were some times where I might have been able to step in and stop somebody else from being bullied. And the only reason I didn't was because I think the bully would have taken me and uh, in a fight. And I, I didn't really want to, you know, I, I didn't really want to escalate the situation and lose. And you got to pick your battles. That's a part of all of this, too. And on that notion of, of picking battles, I just also wanted to say, and back to this Burger King PS, public service announcement, Burger King PSA on bullying, of students bullied each year. That's way too high. Only 12% of Burger King's customers got involved. All right, well, let's think about this for a second, okay? I'm a 35-year-old, 200-pound male, uh, six feet tall. I'm in a Burger King. I see a couple of high school kids, you know, getting into some kind of an argument. And I understand what Burger King wants you to do is, you know, uh, sidle up and say, hey, leave him alone or something. But... I live in New York City, and I can tell you that sometimes when you just kind of make something, when you make someone else's problem your problem all of a sudden, it can escalate very quickly. And I just think about how, okay, in this case, the actors that are bullying this kid don't look scary or imposing or anything. They're kind of small. They're little high school kids that are doing the bullying. But, you know, if I see a couple of 17-year-olds and they're arguing or, you know, throwing French fries at each other in, in a Burger King or McDonald's, and now I get involved, what if one of those, what if one of those teenagers takes a swing at me, you know, and, and, and then I take a swing back? And what if I actually break that teenager's jaw? Do, do you think the police show up and I say, well, sir, um, I was intervening in a bullying situation and uh, I just had to punch that kid right in the face because he took a swing at me? Uh, you know, you better hope that's all on video camera. And even then, you better hope you don't get sued. I, you know, it's just not as easy as expecting a total stranger to intervene, right? That's different than somebody from within the peer group, which is what we really need to focus on, especially for school-age students. The people best suited to intervene in a bullying situation are those who are within that peer group or authority figures with control over the peer group, not a a, a total stranger coming into it because you don't know what you're getting into. And it reminds me when I told you of the story of the scam that was going on on the street in front of me uh, what I remember a couple of months ago where a Taurus was being scammed with a CD and it's, I won't get into the, the scam again but essentially you know it's give me $15 for this worthless CD and 
I thought about intervening, but well, what if what if I actually get into a fight now? And these kids say that they're, you know, aspiring musicians and that they're actually just trying to sell CDs and that I was infringing on their business and making judgments about them and, you know, all this other stuff. Right now, I've got a big problem. So I understand where Burger King is coming from on this, but it's not really fair to me to have adults in a Burger King watching some kids having some kind of squabble and expect that they're just going to jump in there and do something. Like I was saying, if you want bullying to end, it's within the peer group is the best way to get it to end. It's not, oh, anybody with an earshot of this should just come swooping in there because you don't know what you're getting into. I know from law enforcement that they're and from the guys I know who actually wore the, wore the badge and carried a gun in law enforcement. I spent, you know, about 18 months with the NYPD and uh, as an analyst and they will tell you that you get involved between a husband and a wife, she can go from I hate him, lock him up to trying to pound you over the head with a frying pan for locking him up in about a blink of an eye. You just don't always know. So I I just want to put in that note of caution. It's a little more complicated. And I also think, why is Burger King doing this anti-bullying ad? So that people like me will talk about Burger King. Because what is Burger King really? It's the thing that you think might be McDonald's from a distance, but you get closer and it's not. Ooh, I know. It's harsh. It's harsh. All right, team. I've got a lot more. Stay with me right through this break. I'll be with you on the flip side. You wouldn't think that the head of the Environmental Protection Agency would be the kind of role where you'd have to worry about your personal safety and security, right? I mean, Nobody goes to bed at night uh, thinking ill thoughts about the uh, secretary of the uh, interior or commerce secretary or people don't even know who they are, really. So you would think that the EPA head would not be a post where you'd have to be overly concerned or concerned at all about any of this. Well, it turns out that you do if you are the current uh, EPA Uh, director the environmental protection agency is expanding security according to the new york post here for administrator scott pruitt bringing the number of people guarding him to 30 salaries for guards providing the extra protection will cost more than two million dollars a year a level of around-the-clock security no epa epa chief has ever received before because he has received more death threats than any of his predecessors. In fact, four to five X, four to five times more than any of his predecessors. Uh, and there have been 70 investigations so far launched into threats against Pruitt. So uh, let's just take a step back and understand what's going on here, because I don't think it's being reported clearly enough at all. You have these uh, green uh, green energy, climate change alarmist uh, wackos out there who really think that they are fighting some struggle for human existence. And if you believe that, if you're so easily brainwashed and so foolish as to think that we really are on the precipice of the entire world being destroyed unless we modify carbon output from one country by 10 percent or 2 percent or whatever it is that they've changed to now, Uh, You are a dangerous person, right? I mean, if you really think that you are capable of thinking a whole lot of things and do not have a particularly strong connection to reality. But this is this is an indicator 
folks, of what it's really like in America today for the in America now, if you will, uh, for the left and the way that it approaches senior administration officials who disagree with progressive orthodoxy on matters of important public policy. I mean, this is how you have Betsy DeVos, who is an otherwise completely uh, unassuming. I mean, she's a billionaire, but, you know, is a nice lady. And they hate Betsy DeVos. I mean, they absolutely hate her with the fire of a, of a thousand sons on the left because she challenges the indoctrination machine that is the public education school system in this country. And they hate Scott Pruitt because as head of EPA, he's not allowing the EPA to just be a giant uh, ideological echo chamber for climate change uh, alarmism. And there are there are people, very few, I think, in the grand scheme of things, but enough that it's concerning who really think that an EPA chief who is not a climate climate change alarmist is a deep national security threat to this country. I shouldn't even say it's not that many. I mean, as a percentage, it's probably 10 to 20 percent of the country, but that's call it 15 to 30 million people, something something in that ballpark. Right. I mean, maybe it's more. Right. I mean, if it's 10 percent of 320 million, that's 32 million. So 10 to 20, you know, could be as many as could be as many as 60 million. Uh, who knows that really believe in the climate change alarmism and some smaller percentage of that are actually so upset that they would write some crazy email threatening a federal agency head. But now whether it's Education Department, EPA, they are enraged at all of Trump's top people. And it's just an indicator of how crazy the political uh, how crazy the political schism has gotten in this country now where the left really does embrace much more of an Antifa all out ideological and otherwise kind of war against the right than many of us had anticipated before this election. Let's talk about the surveillance state, my friends. That's coming up in just a few. Stay with me. Should you always assume you are possibly being recorded? It's a question that was posed in this piece I read over the weekend by uh, Mandy Statmiller over at the Daily Beast. Never never heard of Ms. Statmiller before, but this is a question whether or not you should assume you're always being recorded, a question that I have been asking for quite some time now. One of the surprises to me has been the series of supposed revelations in the press about just how extensive government surveillance can be as somebody who comes out of the world of government and intelligence and information collection i even thought before i went in that pretty much everything is possibly being uh, intercepted or being stored somewhere and a lot more than most folks realize in most countries is being stored and uh, it will intercepted and stored somewhere. And this now has started to filter into our day-to-day mentality about what's going on in our lives. I have to say that if you had told people 20 years ago that they would have multiple uh, cameras and microphones in their bedroom... And this is true for all of you who have smartphones or smart TVs in your bedroom. 
multiple cameras and multiple microphones in your bedroom at any given time and that they could be accidentally turned on and left on and that they could be maliciously hacked and turned on or stay and continue to go on after you think they've been turned off. I think a lot of people a while ago, most people, your average your average dude, your average guy or gal out there would have said, well, that sounds really creepy. I don't want microphones in my bedroom. I don't want video camera, not just video cameras, mind you, but video cameras that as a default in the case of, say, Snapchat or Instagram can upload to the World Wide Web audio and video instantaneously that can be shared countless times and that there is no hope of retrieving or stamping out once it is out there. Uh, This is, if not a brave new world, a, a very disconcerting one that we all live in. And I think that it has profound implications for human behavior. I think that we are now in a place where we have to assume, and this is something that I've come at from two very different perspectives, we have to assume that there is, in fact, the possibility of our every word being recorded, our every action being videotaped, our every uh, written communication intercepted. Or, and I don't necessarily mean by the government. I just mean by someone, by someone somewhere. And I've thought about this from the intelligence officer perspective, as well as from the media perspective. And it is, in some ways, absolutely uh, wonderful. I think that human beings now uh, are not just much more in communication than ever before, but are also much more aware of their behavior, especially in public, but even in semi-private spaces, much more aware of the possibility of their behavior being recorded and shared, and that affects all of us. Uh, This has been around for a long time in the form of the almost omnipresent uh, video camera surveillance for, well, people always talk about how London has all these video cameras, but there are other places as well where every time you go to an ATM machine or when you go through a toll booth and you're being videotaped and that's being recorded and you're interacting with whether you want to or not, cameras all the time. I even think about in my uh, apartment building where I live in New York City, and this is standard. There is a video camera in the lobby. There is a video camera in the elevator. There is a video camera uh, on the rooftop. There is a video camera in our kind of tiny little gym area. It's a large building. We have a small you know, place where you have some weights you can use. Uh, but any public space you are in, you are being video recorded all the time. And that's just become completely normalized in our perception. Uh, when you walk into stores now, when you walk into... Any restaurant, a lot, a lot of the times, at least by the front where the cash register is or in, in certain areas, they will, in fact, have a video camera. We have wholeheartedly, as a society, as a world, really, embraced the death of privacy. Privacy doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, y- you can hope for it in some spaces in your life and some places, but with the proliferation of audio recording and video recording devices that are internet connected all over your home and with the increasing reality of the so-called internet of things 
in which your toaster oven, your refrigerator will be connected to your thermostat, will be connected to your TV, will be connected to the electric blanket on your bed and whatever. I don't know if people really use electric blankets anymore, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, We are going to be surrounded by devices that have the ability to gather and disseminate data. And this is all very convenient. It's all very good. But it is also, I think, worrying from the perspective of there's really no such thing as a quiet person-to-person conversation anymore. Uh, Even I I think about how in behind-closed-door legal proceedings, do they make everybody take their cell phones out of their pockets and put them in some secure area? No. Well, then even the most intimate and legally protected secure conversations behind uh, courtroom doors in a closed court setting could very well be broadcast to the whole world. And we've gotten more used to, and th- this is touched on in the Statmiller piece, which was a pretty broad base. It's, this isn't a new idea, but it just got me thinking about it. This notion about, should you assume you're always being recorded in every conversation you have with people? Um, and I think the answer is yes, by the way. Uh, and I wouldn't have said that four or five years ago, but I think the answer is yes now. Uh, And I think that this means that people are more careful about their words, but it also has a really a a, a chilling effect. You know, I don't like to overstate this. And and I know this is a bit philosophical, but it's it's late in the show. It's third hour. So I'd like to spend some time thinking big thoughts with all of you or or making jokes about, you know, Nancy Pelosi or, or Bernie Sanders or something. But our behavior being modified so that it is more palatable should it be captured by the outside or captured and then shown to the outside world is a good thing up to a point. But I have to say now I always keep in mind as I'm walking on the street is what I'm saying being captured by the person next to me who's on their uh, smart device talking on the phone with their microphone up to their mouth and one in their ear. The answer is if I'm speaking loudly enough and closely enough to them, yeah, it probably is. When I have had uh, coffees with friends of mine to discuss sensitive professional matters over the last you know, year or two, let's say, have I, in a few instances, had to, I mean, I feel a little bit like I'm a paranoid uh, ex-CIA analyst, which I suppose I am, but have I looked over and seen that somebody had a computer session open up where they were talking to someone and clearly uh, transmitting that audio and, and even some, some background video? Yeah. Yeah, this is now happening all the time. And we're getting used to it without really taking on board, I think, how much this is changing the way that we interact with each other and how there is a, a threat to freedom here. There is a, a, an inability to have anything that is considered a truly private space. Now, this is why I have been uh, a little bit more circumspect or perhaps a little more withholding in my praise or admiration than some other conservatives for some of the work of James O'Keefe, whom we've had on the show before, and I think has done some very uh, worthwhile investigative journalism in the past. But I do think there are uh, limits to this. And I think that, for example, recording under the auspices of having a friendly offline conversation, recording a low-level employee of any company, and then using that as an example of the uh, bias or systematic problems in the company, this, this needs to be considered a tactic of last resort because 
people should be able to say to somebody, I mean, this is what makes me uncomfortable. I should be able to, in the privacy of a person-to-person conversation, share my thoughts about a company I work for or the business I'm in or any number of things without fear that that person is recording the conversation. Now, some states have prohibitions, legal prohibitions on this, and they call it two-party consent. I believe Florida and California are two of them. I think New Jersey is as well, where both parties to a conversation as a matter of law, criminal law, have to be aware of the conversation being recorded. I should note this is really why on so many customer service calls that you will ta- you will be involved in, they'll say, this call may be recorded for quality assurance. It's not about quality assurance. It's about covering themselves so that they can record it and not be uh, criminally liable for uh, essentially wiretapping violations. But there are, there are pluses and minuses to this. I mean, there are positives and there are drawbacks to living in a society where everything is possibly being recorded. I, I think it's the single biggest reason for the overall drop in crime in this country. And it's never attributed to this because the technology has changed without uh, the the measurements of crime changing. Right. So our phones and all this ubiquitous technology that's out there and the connectivity of our communications has just gotten better and better and smaller and smaller. And they're still just saying, well, how many homicides per capita? How, you know, how many burglaries, how many robberies? And we see it going down, and there's a lot of struggle to explain why that is, and people have all kinds of theories. My theory is that you think about what it would be like if you saw somebody in 1980 on the street in a, in a city. Let's just say it's a city to make this easy. And you saw somebody getting uh, stabbed and robbed in the middle of the street. You had to yell for help. Maybe there's a cop in earshot. Almost, you know, nine times out of ten, there wouldn't be, right? You're just making this up, but I'm guessing. You'd have to run and get to a pay phone, call 911. And that person, when the police showed up, they knew that nobody there had a camera on them. They knew that they could say, oh, it was a dispute. I didn't rob him. He was trying to rob me, and I defended myself with a knife. And it's changed human behavior. Because now, whenever something crazy starts to happen, people pull out their phones. They videotape it. They can share that with police, and we all know that. Everybody has this now. So it's over, I think it's overwhelmingly a good thing, but it is changing the way we interact with each other. And the permanence of everything that's on the Internet now as well is something else that we should keep in mind. I mean, I'm just I'm thankful that when I was in college, for example, I didn't have to think about whether people around me all had video cameras out because, you know, I don't think there are that many of us that if we were... Uh, doing a keg stand, which for those of you who are unfamiliar is when people hold your feet up in the air and you take the actual keg and the hose from it and just drink directly from it and are held upside down to get additional beer flow going. I don't think anybody looks particularly mature or cool during a keg stand, although I'm sure a lot of college kids think they do. And I certainly wouldn't want future employers to see my keg standing days from uh, Amherst and and make judgments about what I'm like, you know, 20 years later now as a result. But ultimately, I also think that there needs to be a change in how we assess some of this stuff. Uh, Private conversations should still be allowable and private conversations should be uh, given greater leeway than what is intentionally put out there in public. And I know that hasn't really been the case for some of what we've seen, but I'm just talking about in general, 
we should give a little more leeway to somebody who, say, leaves their cell phone on by accident and transmits, uh, you know, how much they hate their boss to the whole world, although I don't know if the boss would give them leeway, than what is uh, openly shared. Although I don't know if we can really make these distinctions or if we're willing to as a society yet, but it's, it is troubling to me that we all live in a surveillance state that the Stasi themselves could not have dreamed of in the 1950s. And we've done it to ourselves, everybody. We've done it to ourselves. All right, I'll be back with happier thoughts right after this. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. I had a pretty uh, mellow weekend, I guess you could call it, on the positive side of things. Uh, I came down with a cold. I still have a cold. If you hear me sounding very weird on the radio later this week, it's because I tend to be somebody who my colds go in phases. And so I may be in like deep, uh, very deep voice phase in a day or two is my guess as everything kind of runs its course and and my throat gets all messed up uh but anyway i uh had a great recipe excursion with miss molly we made pulled chicken with salsa salsa verde crema i think or cream salsa verde i don't know whatever it was like green cream sauce it was amazing highly highly recommend and it's Pretty much, you just whisk in some cream cheese with some sour cream with some homemade salsa verde, and then you make sure you have some very moist pulled chicken, and you just mix it all together, and boom. It was really good. It was very, very good. But other than that, I was pretty much just trying to uh, rest over the weekend and recuperate for what is the single most important part of my upcoming week, which is always this radio show. I had a chance to check out some uh, new offerings on the uh, television. Over the, why am I speaking like some weird robot? I watched some new stuff over the weekend. Yeah, I, I didn't get to Narcos Season 3 just yet, but I'm hoping to get, uh, get into that. I've heard it's actually maybe the best season. I checked out a show called Berlin Station. A little boring. A little boring. It's supposed to be a, to be a CIA show. I didn't really, I didn't really care for it. To be honest with you, I thought it was really slow, and the characters were forgettable. I, I couldn't even tell you about any of the characters after the first episode, which is not a good sign for a show. I, I had never seen the uh, movie The Beguiled. Molly made me watch that one, which had Colin Farrell in it, and it's just sort of depressing. I, I think it's a remake of a movie with Clint Eastwood from the seventies, if memory serves. Uh, but it's a depressing movie. It's Civil War. I don't know. Do not recommend. I, I did not enjoy it. And then I saw the Spider-Man, the most recent Spider-Man from 2016, I think, which was okay. But CGI, I, I'm on a one-person crusade to get, which means that I'm never going to get anywhere with this. But there's just so much CGI all the time. I really wish that there would be more of a focus on plot and storyline and acting and less on how do we make this the most crazy explosion on screen with the most like lasers firing out of it at once of anything in the history of all movies always forever, which to me seems to be the primary characteristic these days of a lot of or, or the primary defining characteristic of a lot of these uh, big budget films that come out. And there was some pretty good stuff overall in the Spider-Man movie. You know, they had some good ideas, but a lot of it looks like a computer game after a while and I just think that that's bad Jaws was also on recently and you know what's so great about Jaws there was no CGI there was no computer generated imagery so they had to use real stuff and even a rubbery 
fake looking shark in the water, but that's an actual thing is I think a much more compelling visual and much better. And, and is the reason Jaws really stands up, I think as a work of art than some CGI nonsense. So yeah, that, those are my thoughts from the weekend on that. Uh, hoping to get in a history deep dive this week. Please do share the show with a friend, uh, Buck Saxon with America now on the iHeart app or on iTunes. Click subscribe. Excited to be with you here as always in the hut tomorrow night. Until then, shields high.